Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 605 with Chris McChesney. Chris is sharing how to escape the urgency trap and start executing on what really matters. You'll learn one, the three roadblocks to execution, two, the only two things that create engagement, and three, how to instill accountability in just 20 minutes. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you can visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP605. And if you're visiting awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some cool resources such as the Gold Nugget email list, which provides summary, wisdom, and insight. It's like a Cliff's Notes, if you will, a Reader's Digest of the actionable wisdom from Chris in an email you can read in about three minutes, as well as all of the guests who've gone before Chris. You get access to that whole vault called the Gold Nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Chris's story. Chris McChesney is the global practice leader of execution for Franklin Covey and is one of the primary developers of the four disciplines of execution. For more than a decade, he's led Franklin Covey's design and development of these principles, as well as the consulting organization that has become the fastest growing area of the company. Known for his high energy and engaging message, Chris has become one of the most requested speakers within the Franklin Covey organization, regularly delivering keynote speeches and executive presentations to leaders and audiences ranging from the hundreds to several thousand. Chris and his wife Constance are the proud parents of five daughters and two sons. His love of family is combined with his passion for boating, water sports, coaching, and trying to keep up with his kids. Big thanks to Chris for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Chris. Chris, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Jog podcast. Thanks, Peter. Glad to be here. Well, I want to hear your story about how you did not get a job at Franklin Covey, but you faked an internship. How did this go down? I think desperation is probably the best explanation for that. Uh, they were not interviewing. I mean, they would not interview anyone. And I just had an idea. I mean, this is, wow, this is almost 30 years ago. Uh, this was Stephen Covey's company, the guy that wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I was a, kind of a groupie and I really wanted to work for this organization. And uh, I decided if they wouldn't interview me, I'd interview them. So I pretended to work for the newspaper huh? and told them that I was doing an article on up and coming companies in the area. And I, and I submitted the paper 
to the newspaper. They published it. So they okay. kept me from being a liar. Right. Hmm. And, uh, and, and I got I didn't get to Stephen Covey, but I got to his VP. And uh, while in there, I said I needed an internship, which that was a stretch. I didn't really need an internship. There was no internship. And then I just stowed away. So four months later, uh, the Seven Habits, it's number one on the New York Times bestseller list. They had fired their publicist and they looked at me and said, hey, that kid's from New York. Let's have him call Good Morning America. So here I am, uh, unpaid something intern. Actually, there's an episode of Seinfeld where Kramer actually goes to work for a company he doesn't actually work for. But that was done after I did it. I want first billing on that. Hot dog. That's how it got started. Oh, that's so good. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask because, you know, Stephen Covey, boy, what a legacy and really integrity is one of the first words that comes to I mind. Know. And so to, to start with, about what I like is that you're working for the newspaper kind of on spec, you know. That's one way to say it. That's right. As opposed to just uh, a complete fabrication. And then, um, well, that's beautiful. And well, so then can you tell me any stories about Stephen that uh, really stick with you in his memory? Well, it's interesting that we're having this experience because one of my jobs early on was to set him up for interviews like yours. Mm -hmm. And so whenever, just like, you know, my guy gave me a list of kind of some of the questions you like to ask people and things like that, he never wanted to see the list of questions. Ah. And he really liked to be authentic and sort of shoot from the hip and, and much more of a character than, than people realize. He's a bit of a clown uh, when he wasn't on stage and he would either be super serious or a complete goofball. And sometimes you needed him to be serious and he wouldn't be serious. And uh, it surprises people to hear that because he's so, he comes off so serious in his books and his tapes, but yeah, he was a character. Oh man. Can you give me a goofball anecdote? Oh, I can. And it's almost unbelievable, but there is a thing that he did with his sons. Uh, one of his sons felt really ignored by his father, David Covey, uh, felt very ignored by Stephen. And Stephen was on a phone call. And so David got out, this is bizarre, but he got out peanut butter and jelly and started started to spread peanut butter on his dad's head. <laughs> then he put jelly on his dad's head. Then he slapped a piece of bread over it and left. And so then they would do command performances of this. And you, you couldn't, you, your brain, you couldn't get, you know, here's one of the world's leading thought leaders having his son make a mess out of his head and they just thought they just thought that was so funny they just thought that was great <laughs> so they had their own i mean this family has its own brand of humor uh, oh, but yeah yeah, yeah. that it's, is fun uh, that's all real that's you know believable or not that's good well hey, sometimes you know some humor or peanut butter jelly head sandwich can aid in execution and that's my forced segue chris <laughs> because that's your claim to fame and your area of expertise is execution in your book the four disciplines of execution so could you maybe start by maybe give us a quick definition what do we mean by execution that's a really good question and then give us the lay of the land like um how well are organizations and professionals executing today like what are the measures what's the state of the union here when it comes to execution all right, so let's do this. Think about, because execution is one of those words could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? It could just mean getting everything I got to get done, done, mm -hmm. but that's not what we mean by it. What we mean by it is getting that thing done that's not going to happen anyways. Hmm. Most of us have a routine. Uh, organizations have uh, an SOP, or, you know, they have their day job, their existing processes, and it gets stuff done. We get stuff done. And then every once in a while, you've got a goal and it's not going to happen unless it gets special treatment. Mm -hmm. And typically the nature of these things, Pete, is that they don't have an inherent in the moment urgency associated with them. Yes. 
They're really important. And, and if, you, if you made me fill out a quiz on the most important thing to me, like it'd be right at the top of the page, or I put, but it's not getting any attention. And weeks are going by and we're not getting any traction. Uh-huh. Usually when you say that, people identify with something and that's really the execution conundrum right there. What is that thing that is not inherently urgent? Because people are good at working on the urgent. Mm-hmm. And I've got, I, I have to get it done and it's not happening. Yeah. Well, give us just a few examples of things that tend to fall into this bucket again and again. I had one the other day. There was, there was an organization and they, they needed to get these, these jobs defined and they needed to get um, work aids. There were physical therapy uh, group mm-hmm. that had about 50 physical therapy practices. And, and every year they would put money in the line item, a uh, line item, budget item for this. And every year it didn't matter that there was money there. It didn't happen. Yeah. And they could see so many things, but at, never at one time. Um, that might be an example. They actually pushed through and got a hundred of these things made. Uh, you know, an organization that wants to focus on customer satisfaction and they know, right, they know that's so critical, but there's 20 things that happen over the course of a day and everybody's busy and we're not getting to that thing. Maybe it's an improvement in quality. Um, the Georgia Department of Human Services 10 years ago reduced repeat cases of child abuse by 60% by attacking some things that weren't unknown. They were, they were known things, but they were the type of things that weren't getting attention. Uh And if you can put energy against certain activities, um, sometimes it can have shockingly powerful effects. Yes. That really resonates. Certainly rings true. And I think you're right in terms of Boy, I tell you, there's systems and there's processes and things that just happen. And then there's those that it's like they fall through the cracks or it's not a recurring thing. And thusly, it's like you don't get the scale for it, maybe. Yeah. And I'll tell you where it shows up, Pete, is is leaders sometimes will have an agenda. And, you know, it's a big deal when you get a leadership position, you get your first management role. It's a big deal to you. It's not a big deal to anybody else, right? And, and you really know where you want to make your mark. And what gets so many leaders so frustrated is there's so many people giving them the thumbs up and they'll agree with you. And they'll say, I love this boss. It's key to our future, you know? And, and I'll get, I just get people laughing when I'm saying this and then nothing happens, uh-huh. right? And it's not that people are being deceitful uh, or duplicitous. They bought everything that you said. They heard it. And then 45 seconds later, six crises hit their desk. Yeah. And they've been responsive. And so, you know, for leaders to start to understand, geez, what does it take to get deliberate energy against activities that don't act on people? And that, you know, basically, let me sum it up this way. Executing strategies that require a change in human behavior mm-hmm. is the is kind of the whole topic or problem we've been in love with for 20 years. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's dig into the how that's done. So you've got a chapter called The Real Problem with Execution. Lay it on us. What's the real problem? We kind of been talking about it. It is that there's like one side of our brain that deals with importance. And there's another side of our brain that determines how we actually spend time and energy. Hmm. They're, they're not talking to each other. <laughs> yeah. the, in the moment, in the moment, urgency is king. And, you know, if I'm busy all day long and I'm active and I just can't work any harder than I already, already have, I'll tell you, here's how you can feel this. Think about working on a critical project. Maybe it's the most important project of the year and you know it. 
and you're like tying yourself to your desk. And the whole time you're working, you want to get up and do seven different things during that period of time. And, and you think, I must be out of my mind. And it can't be four o'clock already. You know, where did that go? That, that, that is the first, there's a couple of real problems with execution. The first one is that urgency and importance don't line up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Number two is complexity. A lot of times, uh, execution does not like complexity. Two best friends of execution are simplicity and transparency. And our ability to sort of put so many things down that we want to accomplish. So not only is it all the stuff that we're responding to on a day-to-day -day basis, but then when we do go proactive, we try and bite off more than we can chew. Mm -hmm. And that is a whole conundrum in and of itself. And then I'd say the third one is um, uh, futility. And it's the frustration that might be a byproduct of the first two. But when people start giving up, that's when you see burnout kick in. It's rarely a byproduct of actually the amount of work. It's the feeling that I'm working and it doesn't matter. Yeah. So urgency, complexity, and futility really do a lot of damage. And there's ways there's ways to get around this, but it, I think it starts with the question that you asked, like, what's the problem? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's really good. A really good synopsis of just like kind of what makes stuff hard in general in terms of if it's not urgent, it's not sort of screaming to be at the top of your list and thusly it could just keep getting pushed off and just doesn't happen. If it's complex, you just sort of like, uh-huh, I don't even know how to start. I mean, you know, I, it, it just sort of seems intimidating and to approach it. And then if there's a sense of futility, that likewise adds all the more, you know, psychological resistance to it. You know, it's so funny. I'm thinking about, you know, we had a heck of a long, hard time executing a shift in this podcast, which was, we were mostly replying to incoming pitches and we were being selective such that yeah, I thought we we're making great choices. But the consequence of that was the stuff we got wasn't exactly what our listeners needed and in the time they needed it. And so we thought, yeah, we've got a beautiful survey of, of all the stuff people say they need. <laughs> like we should just be run, letting this dictate our agenda and our calendar. Right, right. And we get emails like oh, just about every day from folks joining the email list and they share you know, their concerns. And then but it was hard to make that shift because it was not so urgent. It was sort of like, ah, okay, hey, we say we have episodes two times a week. And so we got to get this calendar going. That's right. And it's a lot harder to The calendar a... was urgent. <laughs> the, the needs and the specific requests, yeah. you had to go after that stuff. The calendar went after you. And it was complex in that it's like, well, geez, how do we reverse engineer it such that we start with a request and then pursue the guest? And then it's it wasn't quite futile, but it was, you know, hey, I mean- Someone's got a book coming out that says yes immediately. Someone who's been like an expert on something <laughs> for decades, you know, and has all the press they never needed, you know, is not as gung-ho to immediately reply to an invitation to the podcast. Although most of the time they still say yes, you know, yeah. in their own time. Yeah. And also some futility associated with, boy, how do we even do this? This is really tricky. And I guess that's ultimately how we just sort of got through it was we said, all right, well, we're going to reduce urgency by getting ahead of the game a little bit. We're going to reduce the complexity by, you know, trying to come up with the process, an acronym or a framework. And uh, I guess we try to reduce the futility by just acknowledging, hey, we don't know what we're doing yet. OK, we're going to have to iterate a few times and that's fine. I really like <laughs> what you just said. I want to press pause on what you just said. Sure. Sometimes, particularly in the area of new goals that you haven't achieved before, you have to give yourself a little bit of slack 
because the real engine for innovation is trial and error. Yes. And there's certain aspects of your job where error is not acceptable. And because error is not acceptable in certain parts of your job, it sort of programs you to think that error is always bad. And you have to give yourself a little bit of leeway around an area that requires innovation. Otherwise, you will not innovate. I, I, I'm convinced of that. No, yeah, that's absolutely true. I think in a way that was kind of a turning point in terms of we got comfortable with this. Like, okay, we're going to make a process that's going to be bad. We're going to try it out and see why it took 12 hours to find some names and, and then, you know, identify the learnings so that we could accelerate a bit and, you know, loop it through again and again and again. And now I'm feeling pretty darn good. Can I give you a podcast on this topic? I'm listening. You just, you just matter of fact, the last three sentences would be a brochure for this podcast. Guy's name is Tim Halford. He's a British economist. And the name of the podcast, if you just Google trial and error, hmm. sorry, podcast, not podcast, uh, TED Talk. Okay. TED Talk, Trial and Error, Tim Halford. And um, it's really, it's, you know, take 15 minutes and watch this. If you're, if you're in a role that requires innovation and some breakthroughs, and I, I think he's, he struck a beautiful chord, very consistent with what we found in our work. And you just described it quite nicely. Oh, thank you. Unintentionally. Okay. Well, you described some things nicely in terms of you've identified four specific disciplines for execution. Can you give us the overview and then uh, let's dig deeper to some of these? Yeah. All right. So the first one, so let's do this. I'll give each one a word. All right. Okay. So the first word is focus and I'll come back to these. So you'll, you'll get them. Right? I'm just going to list them right now. So the mm -hmm. first one's focus. The second one's leverage. Mm -hmm. The third one's engagement and the fourth one's accountability. Right. If you, you think of these four words as a sort of a mechanism for breaking through the urgency trap, mm -hmm. right? Like you want to fly an airplane, there's four words. It's lift, thrust, weight, and drag. Like you get those concepts down, you can put something in the air and keep it there, right? And in execution, we're about focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability. So the first one, focus, is getting really, first of all, narrowing your focus between the one thing that this team that I run is going to deliver and everything that's day job, everything that operationally has to get done. And I'm going to tell you that your operational reality arguably is more important. Like that cannot slip. But if that's all you're doing, you're not going anywhere in your career. Yeah, you're sort of on a treadmill. It's like right. we're continuing to do the things that we've done and we'll probably continue to get the results that we've got. And if you're a big company, the results you've gotten are great, you know. But of course, over time, you know, if you don't innovate, you kind of you know, can wither. So the, I got a good one for you. So the the number two guy at Marriott, he's retiring this year. His name is Dave Grisson. Uh, Marriott's used this methodology for 12 years and they've improved their guest set every single year for 12 years. The champion of this is now the number two guy at Marriott. When he was launching this 12 years ago, he told a group of leaders that were launching this process. He said, it was a two-part statement. He said, first of all, if you want to keep your jobs at Marriott, he said, just take care of the operation. Just take care of the day job. We'll never fire you because if we let you go, the next person might not take care of the day mm -hmm. job. Like, you know, you'll always have a job here if you just take care of the day job. And then you get this smirk mm -hmm. and he said, but if you want to get promoted, give me one. Give me a result. Give me an improvement in arrival experience. Give me an improvement in food and beverage quality. Give me an improvement in, in you know, everything in working order or event satisfaction. Call your shot and bring me something. And it was his way of sort of communicating, you know, it was a great, I thought it was a great way to set, yeah, all right. If I just want to, if, if I just want to take care of the day-to-day -day job, okay, I'll always have a job here. Mm -hmm. 
but if I'm serious about my career, and then they backed it up. So when hotel managers applied for general manager positions or vice versa, the first thing they would say is, all right, tell me about your result. Mm -hmm. What did you target? How did you do it? How'd you, like, I want to know, this is sort of, I think this is a universal principle for career movement. Like, I got to do those two things. I have to maintain the operation. Mm-hmm. That is job one. But if that's all I'm doing, right, I'm, I'm going to, I'm treadmilling it, right? And then in it, what is the one thing, what is the one result that I can deliver? And by the way, that day job will take up 100% of my energy if I let it. I have to steal energy from that. And we say about 20% mm-hmm. to apply towards a breakthrough. So figuring out what that is, defining it, giving it a starting line, a finish line, and a deadline, all of those things are part of discipline one and focus. Chris, I love that so much in terms of it's just a clear framework and it feels, it's just true. It rings true in terms of, yeah, doing your day job, keeping the operations going will consume you. And it is important and it needs to be done. And yet, just as you said, you've got to have that result. I'm thinking here about, I've coached a lot of people on their resumes and career mm-hmm. strategy develop. And that's always my interpretation as someone reviewing resumes for like hiring someone or for helping them to make the resume better is if you just show me, it's like, okay, well, yeah, you know what? I think it's accountants, poor guys, you know, they've got such great skills and that some that I don't have, I love my accountant so much. He's so valuable. And then when I read some bullets from accountants resumes, it's like, hey, you know, did, you know, invoicing or controls or books or reporting. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. That's got to happen. It's hard. I wouldn't be good at it. Yet I'm glad that you're on top of that. But to make me go, mm, impressive resume. I got to see a result and improvement of something. That's like it. you revise a process. Yep. You reduce costs. You improve revenue. You made something that took a long time. Now take a little bit of time. I got to see a result. And ideally there was a number on it from like a resume judging perspective. Yep. There is a number on it. That's right. And think about this. So the great management guru, like the guy that kicked all this off was Peter Drucker. Mm -hmm. Drucker's got this one statement that is money. Drucker says the hardest thing to get people to do is think about their jobs in terms of results instead of activities. All right. And you just described that really well. I do this and then I do this and then I do this and I do that. I mean, if that's on a resume, yeah, that's fine if I need one of those, but that's a certain type of job. Yeah. Right. But if you start thinking in the currency of results, what did I bring now? So I've got, I've got right now, I I have seven children. My wife and I do. Mm -hmm. My oldest is married and my third oldest is married. And so I've got right now, I've got a half a dozen little people in my life that are in their twenties that are looking at careers. And I've been, I've been just really hitting this note that get very comfortable with the currency of results somewhere, right? Your boss Right. If you, let's say you're in frontline management or even middle management, start thinking. And I'm going to steal from Stephen Covey, who we were talking about earlier. Think about what's outside your job description, but within your circle of influence. Uh-huh. The opportunity rarely lives inside your job description. Yeah. But it is something that you could influence. Like, what is the one thing that your boss wishes we had fixed? Uh-huh. Right. What is the one thing that the organization needs? And, you know, can you, can you bring down? Maybe it is within your job description. Right. But, but that thinking in terms of the currency of results when it's not being asked of you is a mindset shift for most people, but it's incredibly enabling. And here's the interesting thing. You're no one's going to have a parade for you when you deliver results. It's Mm -hmm. funny. You'll you'll actually be just, I think you'll be discouraged. Like you'll get this done and you'll get that done the whole time you're doing this. If you're not careful, what's what you're thinking is geez. You know, 
Mary doesn't do this. Mark doesn't do this. <laughs> I'm doing all this extra work. I'm not getting paid. That's the other thing. You'll always, you'll always feel like you're, you're adding more value than you're getting paid. And that's exactly where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And you, you just keep doing these things and nobody cared about them. Like they, you got a pat on the head and a week later they forgot you keep doing it. And then one day they're thinking, Hey, we need somebody. You know, who'd be great for that. Yeah. And all of a sudden you've changed your brand as a, you know, as you're a real hunter, you go, you seek and you, you get results and it doesn't take very long because not everybody's doing it. I can promise you. Right. But everybody applies for the position. Everybody. I've gotten 14 jobs. I've never gotten one of them from an interview. It's always been, Hey, Chris, we're thinking of something. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, I went off. That was just a bit of a soapbox. That's great. That's focus. All right. So you're focusing and then maybe just hit a little bit more. It's often outside your job description, but within your area of control, it's about a result. Yep. And any other little telltale signs like this may be the thing to focus in on. So let's say, be careful of going too big. Mm -hmm. We don't emphasize this enough in the four disciplines of execution. And the second version is getting launched this spring. And we really hit this point. Like I'm in sales. So we've got to grow revenue. I know what the thing is. The thing is revenue. Well, be careful. Okay. Revenue is the title of the book. Mm-hmm. Whatever the macro market share, whatever the macro objective is, think of that like the title of the book. And that's not where I want you to go. I want you to look at the chapters that make up the book. Mm-hmm. And I want you to pick the one chapter where you go, oh, if we could only do this. Yeah. There's this one product we sell. If we could grow that one product, boy, the margins are better. Those people stay with us. They buy our other products. Like, where are you going to put disproportionate energy mm-hmm. against which chapter are you going to double down? And if you could come down sort of one level of abstraction from the big goal down to the chapters, right? Come down off the title of the book, look at the chapters and say, oh yeah, you know what? If we get our first year salespeople to pay for themselves, yeah, just we grow this thing forever. Like, like there's that always that one sort of small target that, geez, if we just did that, wow, we could do X, Y, and Z. Those are the really good, what we call wigs or wildly important goals. They're not always these macro huge things. Oh, that's beautiful. So it's like a domino that sets it off or the key that unlocks a whole lot more. That's it. I like those. Awesome. All right. Well, so we got the focus. Uh, what's next? So the next one is the leverage one, what we call act on the lead measures. Think weight loss. Mm-hmm. If the scale is the lag measure or the goal, those two things are synonymous. The wildly important goal or the lagging measure, the outcome metric is the weight. Mm-hmm. Then if you want to lose weight, there's two lead measures and everybody listening knows what they are. It's diet and exercise, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And you say, well, what's unique about a lead measure from a lag measure? Well, lead measures have two characteristics. I can influence the lead directly. Yeah. Like I can't directly affect weight loss, but I can cut my calorie input and I can burn calories daily. But that distinction right there, folks, that's the whole thing. A metric that can be directly affected. Okay. And then it's other characteristic. It's predictive. Like if I do that, I get the other. Mm-hmm. So think of how a lever works, right? Rock's too heavy to move, but you know what? I can move the lever and the lever moves the rock. Yeah. That is the idea. And you want to prove this point, just ask people to think about someone in their life. And most people have someone who's lost 50 pounds. Like there's somebody they know it wasn't an accident. They deliberately set out to lose 50 pounds, right? So everybody thinks of somebody. And then you ask the question, all right, was that person who lost 50 pounds? 
Were they aware of a diet program and an exercise program or were they counting daily? Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. You do this in a room of 500 people. There might be one or two people that will say they weren't counting. Everybody else. It's got to be like a 98, 99% statistic. Hmm, hot dog. Why is that? Because otherwise we lie to ourselves. But you know, so, so finding the diet and exercise <laughs> in the goal, like it isn't just diet and exercise, it's any lead measures and the most sophisticated processes on the planet. Like people that are building fighter planes and, and you know, structural engineers and people like this can always get into this thinking of, all right, what's the lag measure and what are the lead measures? Where in the process are these things that we could attack? And that's what lead measures are. Figuring out and measuring those things that I can directly influence that'll move the outcome. You know, it's funny, Chris, as you're saying this, because I've had the pleasure, misfortune, I don't know, of gaining and losing 10 pounds about three times now <laughs> in life. And so that has been my experience in that when I really am serious, I use the lose it app or whatever, you know, so that we're, right. we're for real tracking how much am I exercising and how much am I taking in and not just falling into uh, frozen pizzas multiple times a week, then it's happening. And when I'm not, it isn't. So that's my own experience on the weight loss. All right, so let's put it in a business example. Uh, we got a hardware store. They want a likelihood to recommend number, mm -hmm. okay? And they know if they've, they've tracked it. They said, look, if people will recommend our hardware store, if they're likely to recommend, whether they do or not, if they answer that they are, you move that number, you see profits move. Like they know this is a really good chapter heading for a wildly important goal. Mm -hmm. So they're like, okay, what are the lead measures? What they find is, okay, you know, there's three things. When I go to the hardware store, I got to find what I'm looking for. Will someone talk to me? Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two, when I get to the aisle where the part is, do they actually have the thing I was looking for? Out of stocks. Yeah. Number three, once I got it, how quickly can I get out of the store? Right? Now, the, the group that we we're working with, the stores didn't have to pick all three. They could pick one of the three. They could pick two of the three, they could pick, you know, you know, have different teams working on any, but they had to have, and this discipline three is scoreboard. They had to create a compelling scoreboard out of the game. What's the lag and what's the lead? It's a two-part equation. Mm -hmm. So we're going to try and move our likelihood to recommend. And we've never been able to move that score, but we're going after what we think are the three things that will have the biggest impact. And we figured out how to measure, right? Out of stocks. And we figured out how to measure how quickly we engage and we know how to measure speed of checkout. Mm -hmm. And so we're making the bet. And, you know, in our store, we're great at speed of checkout, but we are terrible at out of stocks. And we're going to attack that metric every single week. Like somebody would attack running or whatever. And let's play. And, and this is where the trial and error comes in. Let's see if that does it. Mm -hmm. And let's learn from this. But if you can get, there's an engagement dynamic here too, that when you can get people into the game of what will affect what, it's like a little riddle they're trying to solve. And if they're able to move a metric they've never been able to move before, you can get your team very engaged in, all right, what was our score last week? We, we, we've been killing it on out of stocks three weeks in a row. Did we do it four weeks? How the, what the numbers come in mm -hmm. at? Right. And you can start to engage people in the work in a way. Well, it was surprising to us. We weren't expecting this. It's not why we set out to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's so good. And I think, well, now we're talking about the third discipline with the engagement and the scoreboard is what is a tool for engagement. And I think one of my favorite consulting projects that we saw exactly this, it was the customer service organization. They had six call centers and uh, we discovered that, well, hey, what we want is 
in like title of the book, lower costs associated with addressing customer needs. Yep. And so back it up a little bit, we see average handle time in terms of just how long they need to be on the phone with someone. Yep. And then if we back that up, <laughs> we can see what influences handle time is the experience of the customer service rep. You know, those who know more, they've been around more, are able to quickly and knowledgeably address the questions that come up. Yep. And then so we back that up and we see, well, the attrition rate is horrible. And, you know, so that people are leaving fast, the average person is not very experienced. And so then we back that up and then we really kind of see, well, hey, how are the supervisors treating, encouraging, motivating, supporting the folks who work for them? And then we see wild differences, you know, in that. So those are some actions to take to reduce attrition. And then with the scoreboard is like the data was always suspect in terms of the attrition rates. Because like, well, you know, those were temporary, you know, those were college, you know, summer things. And, and so like no one ever trusted the numbers or could be held accountable to the numbers because they didn't believe the numbers. And so, you know, junior consultant here, it's like, that's my job is I'm making the real attrition numbers. And then I, I get all these emails for people being asked to be added to the daily, daily email about the attrition numbers that are the true numbers. Yeah. And then it's a game. It's like they're saying, hey, wow, this call center had their attrition go way down as compared to the previous month. Well, what the heck are you doing? You know, oh, we tried this game where we offer this prize when they do such and such. People are really getting into it. It's like, oh, okay, we should try that game too. And it's a beautiful thing. All right, I got I to gotta dissect what you just all said. All right. Okay, because you hit you had a couple of really important themes right there. First of all, you had to get good data before this thing worked. Right. So think of any, I'll tell you, athletics, I know people think that sports analogies are tired and usually they are, <laughs> but it's really applicable here. Nobody's going to follow a game if, this, if the scoreboard is suspect for any reason. Hmm. And so, you know, it's not a first down, it's somewhere between nine and 11 yards. No, it's 10 freaking yards. You're nine and, you know, 11 inches, you're going the other way, right? It's, it's, and, and so good data comes from good definitions. So I'm guessing as you got into the data, you had to decide when did it really count as attrition? When didn't it count as attrition? You had to get very clear on the definitions that drove the data. And so once you had a credible scoreboard, the next thing that you were able to show before people, I'm guessing, cared about it is you had to show correlation. You had to show that when one number moved, another number moved. Yeah. And so this isn't just something for analysts. Every business manager has to start understanding some basic correlations because otherwise you're at the mercy of your business. Mm -hmm. What do I put energy against that's going to give me a return? Yeah. And you stayed on that until you found it. Once you found it, once you saw a correlation, everybody wanted to see it. Everybody knew, right? Sometimes it takes a little trial and error, but you hit the two things. You had clean data and you had cause and effect and correlation. Yes. Well, while we're reliving these moments and we talk about correlation, that was one error I think I met is I thought of correlation as, oh, you know, you run the statistics in Excel and each R squared and adjusted R value. But really, no, it was just sort of like with stockouts. There was another project. It was sort of like, it was for service of like technological things. And it's sort of like, did the job get done right the first time and satisfaction? So you could run a big regression with all your variables and it wouldn't look that compelling. But then if you look at satisfaction score in which the job was done right the first time right. on one half of the slide versus the job was not done right the first time, it was like, then it looks like it's night and day. And that's the way to make a correlation pop in my view. Wow. That's very good. Very well said. We have these, we'll do these meetings where we'll get, and we like, we like to get the action very close to the front line. Mm -hmm. So we'll work with leadership teams that have, tr they're trying to do lead and lag measures, three levels, four levels above the front line. And we're like, sorry, 
let's just break the goals down. Yeah. Let's just keep caking. Let's get those targets as close to the front line as possible. And then we want to see half a dozen different scoreboards on a variety of things that are key bets for making the big number move. And then what we'll do about three months in, four months in, we'll do a report out. So we'll have the big bosses come down and talk to the managers and the teams. These are great sessions. And the teams will teach them what they've learned. Like we tried this lead measure, didn't, I know we've been saying it for years, didn't have any effect. But look, look, we just measured it differently and we did this. And now look at the results. Look, we got four weeks in a row, we're moving the lag measure. Yeah. And these VPs are seeing insights into the business Right. And they get very excited about talking to what these frontline teams and it's a huge deal for the frontline teams because they're, you know, they're they're getting some spotlight right now. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, I got a book recommendation for you on this one, if you want. I'm listening. Uh, a lot of people like Patrick Lencioni. I'm a big fan, too. Oh, yeah. We've had him on the show. He's great. Oh, yeah. OK, great. Yeah, he is great. Maybe his least read book is my favorite. And it's three signs of a miserable job. Hmm. He likes it too. He's re-releasing it. He thinks the reason it doesn't sell well is because nobody wants to be carrying that title book around. (laughs) Get on Kindle, hide it. So now he's calling it like the secret of engagement (laughs) or something like that. But like our 20 years on execution and his work really walked parallel paths. And three signs of a miserable job is anonymity, irrelevance and immeasurement. Yeah, sounds miserable to me, yeah. Bowling through a curtain, right? Sounds miserable. Anonymity, nobody cares what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Irrelevance, it doesn't matter. And in measurement, I don't know if I'm winning or losing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people don't want oppressive data that doesn't really tell the whole picture. No, resist that stuff. But really cre- helping, you know, when they can actually influence creating a, and we use these words, high stakes, winnable game. Yeah. Right. That you can get a great deal of engagement right there. Okay, cool. Well, let's talk about finally the fourth discipline here, creating a cadence of accountability. Uh, how do we do it? So this is one where if, it's almost like if you think about disciplines one, two, and three as setting up the game, right? One is the target. Two is kind of the how. Three is sort of encapsulating it in a scoreboard. Four is how we play the game. Uh-huh. And this now we're going to go full circle back to the urgency thing. You can't beat the urgency thing. You have to sort of trick your own brain. And the way this works is everybody on the team makes a commitment during this little meeting. So every week at the same time, 20 minute meeting, Tuesdays at nine, it's Tuesdays at nine, no matter what. And you have to be kind of a freak about it, okay? okay? You got this meeting around this scoreboard. We call them wig sessions. And everybody in that meeting reports on the thing they committed to do last week that would have an impact on the scoreboard. Uh-huh. So I take one commitment. Okay, you know, like we have a lead measure of interviewing 80% of our first time accounts, right? But this, I could tell now that the script doesn't look really good. So my commitment for the week is we're going to rewrite that script, right? Or, you know, uh, you know, the Rensselaer office is really struggling. I'm going to meet with Marty and we're going to go over such like something I'm going to do every single week. And so that in that meeting, everybody has to say, here's what I said I was going to do last week. Here's the impact it had on the scoreboard. And here's my commitment for next week. And that's all they say. Mm-hmm. Next person, here's what I did. Here's what my scoreboard looks like. Here's what I'm going to do next week. Like brainstorming, problem solving, sometime up out of this meeting. This thing, you are in and out. If you can do it in 20 minutes, great. And there's this sort of two things about this. One, the commitments can't come from the boss. Mm-hmm. You pull this, you don't push it. Yeah. So the bosses sometimes sit there chewing their tongues off because they know what they want to have done. Mm-hmm. But no, no, you got to ask everybody, give me that. What is the one thing, Pete, you're going to do this week that's going to have the biggest impact on one of those lead measures? It's like just-in-time strategic planning. 
And then, you know, next week we have people say all the time, you know what? It was Thursday night and I had that wig session Friday morning and I was up till two o'clock in the morning. Like I was not, people don't want to disappoint their bosses. (laughs) They won't disappoint their peers. Yeah. They don't like to disappoint their bosses. They can get over that. But we found that when it becomes peer accountability, they take it really seriously and you get, you get really good commitments and you get energy. And then four, five, six weeks of non-urgent activity because mm-hmm. these commitments would never make anybody's to-do list, but they're the most important thing you could do to drive the lead measures. Yeah. And so that's really the secret of the whole thing is we just start to mine, harvest, pick your metaphor, you know, energy against that scoreboard every single week until the team realizes we're doing something nobody's been able to do before. Yeah. And it's moving. And that's, then we get the pop and engagement. That's our story. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. And um, I see what you mean about tricking your brain with the urgency is uh, it's now urgent in that you don't want to look like a fool. You don't want to let people down. Yep. And the clock is ticking that you're going to have to say something on Friday. So hopefully it's going to be a good something. And the day job has all that stuff built in. Right. Like that's why the day job has its own accountability system called your neck. Yeah. <laughs> like you get a phone call. Like people get mad at you. Uh-huh. You don't want that phone call. So we do that, right? Mm-hmm. But the goals, the goals need a mechanism to create the same kind of urgency that the day job has. Yeah. And if you can do it in a way where people feel like they're part of something, and, and then this is what we found. So I gave you the quote on um, uh, Lencioni's book, Three Signs of a Miserable Job. I'll give you another one. It's an HBR, Harvard Business Review article, uh, May 2011. There's also a book by the same name called The Power of Small Wins. Uh And it goes back to research that was done in the 60s by a guy named Frederick Hertzberg. And Hertzberg said, you might, those of you that have had like MBA classes recently, like his name comes up, right? He came up with this theory and he said, look, the stuff that people quit over, pay, best friend at work, job conditions, benefits, does not engage them. I'm going to say that again. The stuff people quit over does not engage them. They'll quit over pay, whether they have a best friend at work, whether they like them, but they'll quit over all that stuff. There's only two things that engage people, really create engagement. And it's, am I winning? Am I progressing? Is it working? Is there some progress? And does it matter? Mm-hmm. Is it a winnable high stakes game? And so what we tell people is, look, don't get overwhelmed by this. Right. If you're a leader, your your team doesn't have to feel that way about everything. The day job, 80% won't feel that way most of the time. It's okay. But if you can create a high stakes winnable game around that 20%, that one thing, it affects the way they feel about everything else. Uh And I would even say in raising teenagers, it's the same thing. Find one thing in that kid's life that they're winning at and they feel good at. uh, It has an impact on everything else. Yeah. That, and that's so, so I'll tell you, after 20 years, that's what we've learned. If you can create a high stakes winnable game for people, it has a profound effect on morale and engagement. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And I think it's true all of life in terms of, in my own experience, is like, I got to feel like I'm winning something. <laughs> you know, yeah, right? in terms of like, give me something. It's like, yeah. I might feel like a lame dad or a lame husband. <laughs> But I, if I'm winning at work, it's like, okay, you know, life is has some color or vice versa. You know, I might right, feel like, right, oh right. man, COVID hit, my downloads are down. Well, you know what, man, right. I'm having a blast with my kids. You know, like yeah, exactly. you gotta be winning at something. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so that's the question to leaders, right? Do the people who work for you feel like there's some part of what you're doing 
that feels like a high stakes winnable game. Mm -hmm. And if they do, they won't forget it. It's a much bigger deal to people than you think. Yeah. Well, Chris, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about a couple of your favorite things. That's it. That's the story. All right. Well, can you give us a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring? This is the true joy in life, being used for a purpose considered by yourself to be a worthy one. Instead of being a feverish little clot of grievances and ailments, complaining the world will not dedicate itself to making you happy. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. And I forgot who said it. Oh, I, it's on the tip. I thought was the one that that was the one that I was like, oh, about. man, it was nice. It was well done. The clod of grievances is always like, oh, yeah, man, yeah. I to be a force of nature, right? Mm-hmm. Attack something, bring something down. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite book? Uh, you know what I'm reading right now is I'm reading the biography of Hamilton that Lin-Manuel Miranda based the uh, Broadway play on. Mm-hmm. And I'm just crazy. My wife and I are just crazy for the play. And the biography is stunning. And it's just a really inspiring story of someone who had no business having an impact on the world that he had. Uh, Chernow is, is the guy's last name. But the, the Hamilton biography is fantastic. Hey, oh, on this topic, more to this topic. Although I'll tell you, the book I read before that was um, Robert Greene on Mastery. Mm-hmm. And I actually had all my kids. We did a dinner and you could only come to dinner if you had read at least the first chapter of Mastery. <laughs> and it's really an interesting perspective on the whole career conversation. Mm, thank you. And how about a favorite habit? Water skiing. Mm-hmm. I've got to do a lot of it because I haven't been on the road. Oh, that's good. This has been my summer of slalom water skiing. That's my addiction. Mm-hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share that really connects and resonates with folks? They quote it back to you and they highlight it in your book, et cetera. There will always be more good ideas than there is capacity to execute. Yeah. And it, I find that very comforting in terms of, and, and so because- Because you don't have to bring them all down, yeah, right? Yeah. And um, in a way, it really is a blessing. It's like such abundance. We can sort of enjoy that as opposed to be stressed out by Thank it. you. <laughs> right. It's because it kind of shames us in one yeah. moment. But you're right. It's just great to realize, because there is this onus sometimes when we think, oh, that, oh, I didn't do, oh, and we didn't follow up on that. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, trust me, you and everybody else. Right. Well, it's, it's so funny. Sometimes I, when I have lots of opportunities, you know, like they in business. It's like, I find that I get more stressed. I know. And it's like, I'm enjoying my work less. And it's like, what's less. this about? Like, this is exactly. good. This I is know. good. And I'm, so yeah, thank you. It puts it right, the frame right back where it needs to be. And how about if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? All right. So um, you can go on Amazon and look up the four disciplines of execution, mm-hmm. uh, which is our, our book that has done way better than we ever thought it would with a title like that. <laughs> with the words discipline and execution. <laughs> you don't have high hopes yeah. when you launch that book. And it is it is uh, continues to be a bestseller to our delight and amazement. And then if you go to uh, all one word, Chris McChesney, uh, 4DX.com, that'll take you to my website and kind of the work that we do. And you could also, or, or you can go through the Franklin Covey website. That works as well. And you find me there. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I guess the one, I'll just go back to the one I said a minute ago. Find something outside your job description within your circle of influence and get your team treating it like a high stakes winnable game. If you can do that, uh, you're not a manager, you're a leader. Mm-hmm. Chris, this has been a treat. Uh, I wish you lots of luck. Right back at you. I love so much of what Chris had to say. Boy, the high stakes winnable game, I think is such a crisp, clear, succinct 
articulation of what is the motivating, exciting groove versus the kind of, you know, do, 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 humdrum groove. So great stuff from Chris. I would reflect on to what extent do you feel like you're engaged in a high stakes, winnable game? And can you get more of that in those 20 minute meetings, making it all the more real? So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP605. If you haven't already, I hope you push subscribe to catch your next guest and the following ones automatically. We got Ed Hess. He's got some pro tips on hyper learning. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.